Welcome to SECC. We pray that you are blessed today as you listen. This morning's reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. The visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the reign of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Amen. We're going to spend a few minutes just looking, um, not actually at that passage at all, um, but a part of that passage, um, the bit from Micah chapter 5 verse 2, but that's where we see it finding its New Testament uh, fulfillment. Don't worry if you've not got, a, not got a Bible on you. Um, there are various bits will appear on the screen, uh, as well as my amazing slides, which, uh, which I can actually, for the first, I never look at them, but I thought that's actually quite a nice slide. That took minutes for me to do, but like minutes. Um, when you've got the right software, things can look really professional with the lack of not too much effort. Anyway, um, one of the cardinal rules for somebody in my position, um, uh, a sort of somebody preaching on a Sunday morning, is to not preach politics. Um, They say that the pulpit, that's the pulpit, if you're unfamiliar with church, that would be considered the pulpit. This would be considered the lectern. Uh, I'm not grand enough for the pulpits. Uh, That's why the telly's there instead. Um, But the the, the pulpit is not for politics. The preachers um, should keep away from politics and shouldn't really share their views and their agendas and their leanings, which I mostly agree with, actually. I pretty much uh, agree with that as a statement. Um, And you may... well, I suspect you won't be able to point. You won't be able to point to any of my political views if you know them um, coming out from the front, particularly because I'm here to preach God's word, uh, not my particular take on the world. But that said, as we enter the Christmas period as Christians, um, especially with today's particular passage, how can we not comment 
on the failure of human leadership and human structures and governments and agencies which all in their own special way claim to be the saviour of the world. Various politicians in every country or structures or philosophies or movements and cultural movements all claim that they are this generation's saviour. We are the ones. If we do it this way, the world will be better. We will save you if you just elect us, follow us, um, change your profile picture to what we want it and we think it should be or whatever it might be. All these movements claim to be the saviour. And so as Christians, whilst we don't want to become politicised in our own special pressure group, we need to keep away from that, I believe, because we're here to love all people in all groups equally. How can we not speak into a world that actually idolizes leadership and idolizes power and actually often abuses it in very serious ways? At Christmas, we come to worship not just the baby in the manger, but the one who was born to be the greatest leader, the king of, above all kings, the one who was lord of all lords. How can we not speak about him and shine his light? into the structures and ways of the world. We live in very odd times when it comes to governments and politicians, don't we? In fact, there's a very odd, dim view about all forms of leadership, wherever it may be seen. People are naturally very sceptical of this group of people called leaders. Um, As soon as someone occupies a position of authority, uh, in this country, I believe, particularly, we are almost instinctively cynical and disappointed in them before anything happens. Um, And when it comes to politicians and politics in this country, I heard a a good quote. It was really a statement. which is the same thing, isn't it? Um, but it's just a statement about the way politics happens in our country and why everyone is so disenfranchised and dissatisfied with those in leadership in this country. And uh, the quote was something along these, these lines, is that actually to get into power now, you have to offer the world to the electorate. You have to say to them, if you elect me, I will make this country a world leader. Why do we have to be world leaders in everything? I never know. But we'll be world leaders, world beaters. Everyone will follow us. We'll be at the front, not the back and not in the middle at the front will be the best you'll be rich beyond your wildest dreams you'll all have three unicorns and a car two cars five cars and a holiday and so all these great grand promises are made in the run-up to a campaign and election and of course we play our part in believing it wholeheartedly and saying we believe you so we vote them in knowing in our hearts that they cannot possibly keep even a fraction of the things they promise of course they can't And so then they become politicians and leaders and form governments and then we become very unhappy very quickly because, of course, they can't keep their promises, which they knew and we knew, and those promises are broken. But never fear. Someone else soon comes along after them making grand promises. I'll give you four unicorns and seven holidays. Don't worry. I can fix this country. We won't be world beaters. We'll be the only country. Everyone else will just vanish. And then the same thing goes round and round and round and round and round. But it reminds us, doesn't it, that good leadership is actually vital. That good leaders shape people's lives. They shape their ideals. They shape the direction that they travel in their life. They shape communities, towns, nations, continents. And sadly, bad leaders do exactly the same in reverse. They shape people's lives, their ideals, their direction, their communities, and even a whole continent. Today, we're continuing our series called Prepare for the King. And we will see that part of our Christian hope, our Christmas hope, is found in the arrival of the perfect leader, of the perfect king, the perfect Lord, who will enter the world, has in fact entered this world, and will be able to do for us 
what no politician, no government, no philosophy, and no cultural movement or revolution ever could. Bring us together as one, offer us true salvation, and give us a hope that goes beyond the grave. And more importantly, perhaps in all of that, will tell us the truth, not the spin. So Micah chapter 5 verse 2, which uh, Gareth did read, um, but not directly, uh, in the verse um, from Matthew chapter 2, is a prophecy in the Old Testament. Micah's known as a minor prophet, uh, not because of any other reason, except there are 12 uh, writings in the New Testament, the Old Testament, which are very short. You've got the, the major prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel that wrote very long books, uh, delivering what God said to them, what God spoke to them. They wrote it down and they gave these words to Israel, uh, which is the, sort of the bit before Jesus the nation of Israel, of course, Jesus came from them. And you've got these 12 minor prophets who wrote much shorter uh, letters or writings, which were, nevertheless, the writings and the, the words of God delivered to God's people. Fundamentally, most of these minor prophets uh, write negative words. It's God's judgment on his people. They've turned from him, and God is challenging them about their behavior. We need to be challenged about our behavior every now and again. It can't be all rainbows and puppies, can it, all the time? Sometimes someone has to say to you, you're sinning, stop it. Change. Change what we're doing. Stop being angry. Stop being bitter. Turn and go that way. That's better. We can't excuse everything. And actually, the Bible challenges us, challenges the way we live, the things we say. And God's people, Israel, were challenged over and over and over, especially when they broke their covenant promises to God. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And that's part of a much bigger uh, letter, like I say, much more said in there. But in the midst of all of it is this messianic promise. They call this a messianic prophecy. And the Old Testament is full of these moments where God will just say something about this coming king. There's this king that's going to come. The world's fallen to pieces. They're at war with each other. You've sinned. You've broken promises with me. But this king is going to come one day who's going to make everything good. He's going to bring you back. He's going to restore you. But not just you, Israel. The whole world will get to be under this king's leadership. And he will bring everyone together, those that trust in him and love him and know him. Psalm 23 describes him as the shepherd, not just a king, but a shepherd who will lead his people even through the darkest valley into everlasting life. Last week we looked at Genesis chapter 3 verse 13, our first messianic prophecy in this series, which spoke of his action, that this someone was going to come and crush evil. Let me long for that day when evil is fully destroyed. That's what we believe as Christians. Evil doesn't have an, an eternal, an eternity. It's limited and Christ will return and finish what he started and achieved on the cross and evil and darkness will one day be snuffed out for good. Amen. But then we've got this other messianic prophecy from Micah chapter 5 verse 2 describing us in a bit more detail of who this someone is that's going to crush evil. In fact, he's going to be a king and he's going to come from a place called Bethlehem. But before we dive into this, uh, we really should marvel at just how wonderful this is that we've just read. Because this was written by Micah 700 years before Jesus was in fact born in Bethlehem. 700 years, his birth and place was prophesied by one of God's people in Israel. You, Bethlehem, the ruler is going to come. And then Jesus was born in the state. That's why we had Gareth reading, because that's when it came true. The wise men knew it. The star in the sky knew it. 
The scholars knew it. And it pointed to that fulfillment of that prophecy. How amazing is that? We should be amazed by that, actually. This is incredible. Can you imagine? If I predict what's going to happen next Thursday, people are impressed. (laughs) Which I never do, because I don't know what's happening from day to day at the moment. But God told someone 700 years before that his king, his ruler, is going to be born in Bethlehem, not near it, not down the road or or that country, that particular place. And there he was with a star above him and the wise men from that distant land coming to worship him, recognizing just from the kind of celestial event that he was the born king of the Jews. We should marvel at that. That's how amazing God is, a beyond time, into eternity, yet he chooses to speak into our lives within time. And things happen, we know from this, according to his timing and his purposes. If you're wondering why God hasn't moved yet, stop wondering. Start trusting his calendar, not yours. I know it's painful. Of course it's painful. But God will do what God is going to do at the right time. Our job is to trust him, even though it may feel like 700 years has passed. If we trust him, he will move. This actually reminds me, Gareth's reading, reminds me of that scene in the Titanic. That if you've watched it, it's, I realize just sitting down there how old the film is. And for me, the Titanic film, which I think was made in 1997, feels like it was only made 10 years ago. But there we are. Okay. That's how I'm going to feel more and more. But there's that wonderful, not wonderful, terrible scene where they're being told to speed the ship up and the guy's standing there with the ice warning in his hand. And for me, the thing with Herod in Jerusalem at the birth of Jesus is a bit like that film. He says, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? He's got a star in the sky. These weird wise men, probably 30 of them, have all turned up, big fanfare, come to worship a king. And Herod says, where is he supposed to be born? And they go, oh yeah, Bethlehem. I would think, ooh, that's quite serious. I should probably go and worship him. But what does he do? He tries to kill him. And as much as we marvel at God's prophetic accuracy, we should marvel in a sad way at the darkness of the human heart that when presented with God, even as flesh, would rather try and kill him and worship him. And that fundamentally is humanity's biggest problem. We would rather kill God than submit to him. So let's come back to this book, otherwise I'll just go off on a massive tangent and not actually what I've written down. Um, so what is this uh, situation in the context of the, the uh, book of Micah uh, towards the end uh, of the Old Testament? Uh, this prophecy, these chapters that he's written here that God speaks to his people is essentially God challenging their behavior. God is um, telling them where they've broken their actions. One, one commentary I read described it as God's lawsuit against his people. Um, This is what he writes. As for me, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. This whole prophecy is God saying to his people, you made this promise. You promised that you would be my people, you would be holy. That's what they did. They made an actual promise, a, a contract with God to be his people so his Messiah could come from them, and they've broken it. And so Micah is God saying to them, this is how you've broken it. And this is now what has to happen. There are consequences for sin. There are consequences for rebelling against God. Their actions have consequences. And actually part of the reason why they fell so far is because they had bad leaders. Bad leaders running that country as well. And chapter 3 of Micah uh, denounces their leadership and how bad they are. So what happened to make them so bad as a nation? In the 8th century BC, a long time ago, um, it was a relatively quiet time for God's people. The Assyrians, who'd been bugging them for some time, stopped. And in, in that kind of peace, 
emerged a wealthy upper class. They became leaders, I guess. They became people of influence. And with that money and that wealth came corruption. That corruption spread throughout all of God's people. And isn't that what we see nation after nation? A nation becomes rich, becomes self-sufficient, becomes affluent and prosperous. And so we embrace leisure, we embrace sin, and we embrace all the things God says you shouldn't do that. And we embrace it. That's what happens. A wealthy upper class appeared. And then with that wealth came corruption. What did they do? You see it there. They did idolatry. They turned from worship with the one true living God. And they built for themselves statues out of wood and stone and worshipped them. Things that weren't God when they should have worshipped the actual God. They seized people's property, people in leadership. Said, I fancy that field. I'll take that. Uh, and they so they abused each other. There was a failure of civil, religious and prophetic leadership all over the place. But yet they had this weird, twisted spirituality that believed that even though they were sinning and breaking their agreement with God, as long as they sacrificed something at the temple and did the rituals, he'd be all right. Sound familiar? I sin all week long. As long as I'm really sorry on the Sundays, it's all right. God won't mind. It's not, it's not good enough. And on top of that, uh, there was corrupt business practice and violence. That's a really serious book. I'm not going to dwell on that for too long because it is Christmas. Um, But the point I'm trying to make is they've mucked it up. They've mucked up as a nation what it meant to be God's people. They'd rebelled against God. It was awful. And there were consequences coming. But what I love is in the midst of this prophecy, this, this damning book that's challenging God's people, comes this offer of hope and this promise of restoration. And we see that in the Old Testament over and over again. No matter how far God's people fell, no matter how much um, God might even punish them for their sin, he always gave his nation a way back. A remnant will return. If you just seek me, you'll find me. If you seek me with all your heart. And actually, isn't that the core of our hope as Christians in Jesus Christ? That we may well have ruined everything. We may well have mucked our entire lives up. We might be so uh, entrenched in our particular struggles and our sins and our addictions that we can't see a way out. And we say, Lord, I'm useless. I'm rubbish. Forget it. Give up with me. I've reached the end of your tether, surely. But always, 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 there is a way home. There is a way back like the prodigal son. And the whole uh, core of our faith in Christ, the Savior, born in that stable in Bethlehem, is just that. And no matter how far you've fallen, how far you've wandered, how much you've turned your back from God and said, go away, I'm not interested. God always is wanting you home. God is always wanting you to return. God will always love you and will always give you the chance to be forgiven. Micah offers a better king. God offers his people a better leader. Why Bethlehem? Well, because Bethlehem was where David was born. David was the great king of Israel. This new king is going to be like David, but more mightier. But not just that, he's going to be humble. Bethlehem is this tiny little backwater of a place. The greatest king that's ever lived is going to be born in a tiny place with humble beginnings. He's going to know what it's like to be humble as well as mighty. There will be no arrogance in this new king. But what, what else? This king is promised to be a ray of light in darkness. Chapter 7, verse 8. Do not, hang on, yeah. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. The king is going to come and this darkness of their own making, perhaps, for them. He will be a light to them and show them the way. He can show you the way 
He can show all of us the way. But more than that, this king is going to be someone extra special. We get these two strange little uh, words at the end of verse 2. It says, his origins will be from of old and from ancient times. And those two expressions mean two very separate, different things. The first is, He's going to have this lineage all the way back to David. He's going to come from the people of Israel. He's going to have a long history that takes him back to David. That's one part of it. But this from of old means eternity. That this king who's going to come is no man, no mere man. He's going to be someone who's linked to your kings, but he's coming from God. And he's the king of kings. He's the eternal king. And so that's why I can read a passage that was written 2,700 years ago and take it home in my heart and believe it. Because that king still lives. Because he is eternal. And so, just like the situation 700 years ago, our world is unraveling. Our world and our lives often unravel. You only need to turn the news on and we read the assaults and the murders of our children. They just wash over us. We've all just stopped remembering their names, haven't we? Every day in London, in our big city, someone's murdered somewhere. And it just passes us by. We've almost given up. Because what's the point? Maybe in our own lives as well, we've given up as well. We no longer even feel it. We just get up and go to bed the same way we always did. Our world is confused. And often it blatantly rebels against God and turns and attacks each other. Those in government are completely lost, I'm convinced, as to what to do next. And more often than not, are unduly influenced by pressure groups with one single agenda. Do this, or there'll be trouble. So they do it. Someone else comes along, do this, and there'll be trouble, and they do it. And then we get muddied waters where we need principles and godliness. We need a king more than ever. A leader of purity and righteousness who knows what it's like to be poor. Who knows what it's like to have been oppressed. But who has the power to rule and the character to handle it. And that person is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the King. The one born in the manger who rose from the dead. Who will return soon to take us home. And that, that is our Christmas message. It always was and it always will be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can address you. We can speak to you. You are the one mentioned in Micah 5 verse 2. The one from God, the ruler from of old. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were there before day one of world history. And you'll be the one that returns on the final day of world history. I thank you, Lord, that you will make all that is bad good. That, Lord, you will deal with that evil, Lord, in the most final way. When you return. But Lord those who put their trust in you. I thank you. That for us Lord there is that hope of everlasting life. That you will take us to be yours forever and ever and ever. We thank you Lord that no matter how much we muck it up. We thank you Lord that you forgive us. And there's always a way home. Lord I pray for any here this morning or watching from home. Lord those who feel like they have mucked it up. That there is no way back. Remind them Lord that you sent your son. You, sent, you were sent by your father. To bring the prodigals home. Bring the broken and make them whole. And the sinner and forgive them. Lord, may we speak this out directly over Christmas to so many of our friends and family who are just fed up. And we commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.